Well, as we've been going through Philippians, for those who have been at the retreat, you know that we've had to exercise <clears throat> what Pastor Martin called the discipline of exclusion, because there's so much material here that we can't cover it all. We can't look at all the gems in the mine. We can't take out our pick and shovel and dig up every one of these treasures. We have to pass some by. And so we're going to come this morning, though, to chapter 3 and dig out one of the big diamonds that is lying here. Not too hard to dig out, but still we want to shovel a little bit and dig a little bit and examine and consider what does the scripture say. We're going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And in this passage, we have Paul's testimony, if you will. This man who was, he self-described, the chief of sinners, and then who became that missionary par excellence, that servant of Christ, that apostle to the Gentiles. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, Beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, a persecu persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God on the, by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray and ask that God would teach us these words, help us understand Paul's testimony, and that though not in all details, but in the essence of it, it would be our testimony as well, the testimony of each one here this morning, young and old, from the least to the greatest, from the greatest to the least. Let's pray to that end. Our Father in heaven, even as we learned yesterday that you opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken by Paul, we ask that you would open hearts this morning, that you would perform that open heart surgery, take out the heart of stone and replace it with a beating, living, loving heart of flesh, a heart of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a heart that desires to follow the Lamb wherever he leads a heart that turns from this wicked, perverse generation into the ways of the Lamb. And so we're asking you to do that 
marvel of the new birth. We're asking you to work also in those who are your people, that we would, will, and do your good pleasure in every aspect of our lives. And so may this testimony of the Apostle Paul, who counted all things lost for the sake of gaining Christ, who boasted in his Savior, gloried in Christ Jesus, that we would do the same, that that would be the testimony of each one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you look at your uh, outlines there, and I don't always do this, but it was requested, so there you have it. You've got three points. What Paul lost and what Paul gained and what about you? And so that's really the outline of what Paul's describing as his own testimony. He starts with what he lost, what he gave up, what he says in verse 7, I counted them to be lost. Well, let's start there, what Paul lost. And when he says what things were gained to me, of course, he's talking about those things that he said, I could have had confidence in. If anybody could boast, if anybody would puff out their chest and say, look what I did, I challenge you. Let's go head to head. I'll match with you. And I think I've got you beat. All right? That's, in, a sense, in essence, what Paul is saying here. I far more. You think you're, you've got it made. You think you're a good person. Look at me. Look what I had. Well, what did he have? Let's look at what Paul lost. And of course, he's referring back to those things that he said he could have had confidence in back in verses 4 through 6. And some of them, of course, in a, in a way, he didn't do them. They're things he received from childhood. And, you know, we, we sometimes get people who boast in their lineage, boast in their parentage, boast in what they inherit. But you didn't do that. Right? It's what was done for you. Well, as Paul starts there, things he received. Look back at the text. All right, so I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I for more. What are they? First, verse 5. Circumcise the eighth day. All right, now this was Jewish law, that when you have a child born, you don't circumcise in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, sixth, seventh day, or the ninth, tenth, eleventh, and following days. He was to be circumcised the eighth day. And Paul says, that's me. Now, if you read the letter to the Philippians, you notice that there were, and they're described even here in this chapter, uh, these Judaizers, these who were uh, boasting in their flesh. That's what he's talking about. If anyone has reason to boast, well, there were those who were saying, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to do this and follow these Jewish regulations if you really want to be right with God. A law. And not only moral law, but ceremonial law. And Paul says, probably, you know, let's match here. Were you circumcised the eighth day? Well, you know, some of these guys maybe didn't make that. I've got it. Check. Of the stock or the nation of Israel. I'm a true Jew. You go back in my lineage. You can go to my genealogy. You trace back as far as you want to go. And you get to Abraham. Both sides. I'm a true Israelite. Not only so. I know what tribe I'm from. And I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. You, you might say Benjamin. You know wait a minute Benjamin. Who's the most famous Benjamite? You know. Uh, actually his namesake. Saul. Saul, he was a great king, wasn't he? Uh, 
Not so. Uh, not so great. In fact, thumbs down on King Saul. So why is he boasting that he was of the tribe of Benjamin? Well, let's think. What was good about Benjamin? Of all the 12 tribes, when there was the division between the north and the south, and Judah is that tribe that has the son of David as its king, the lineage of David, to whom the Davidic covenant is promised, which tribe stuck with him out of the other 11? Benjamin was faithful to the Davidic king, even though Saul was of that tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Furthermore, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So again, nation of Israel, stock of Israel, a real, genuine, bona fide Hebrew. You couldn't beat him on those terms. So, but, but these are not things he did. This is not what he earned. This is not something he could puff out his chest about and say, look what I did. It's what he inherited. This was just based on his birth and what his parents did for him. But now let's look at what he did. All right, let's look back at the text. He says, after a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now, what was the relationship of the Pharisees to the law? And if you don't know anything about the New Testament, you know that the Pharisees were a sect, a group of Jews, not necessarily a tribe or not necessarily having an office in Israel, but they were a sect of Jews who prided themselves on being very strict about keeping the law. In fact, we know about the Pharisees that they not only kept the Ten Commandments or the 473, I don't know how many there were, commandments of all the moral and ceremonial and civil laws, they even added to them. And so, for example, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? They said, well, okay, we're not going to, it says don't light a fire. We're not going to light any fires on the Sabbath. They were very strict. We're not going to carry a burden. And they would have a, a limit of how far you could walk with a burden. And so if you're going to go see your friend who is, uh, you know, past that limit, you would keep a, tooth, a toothbrush like halfway so you could say, well, I didn't carry it all the way. And they, they were so strict about so many little details. But Paul could say, when you come to the law of God, I was a Pharisee. And that said it all. I was stricter than strict. And so I could check all the boxes. You know, the rich young ruler. All these things I've kept from my law, from my youth up. So he's a Pharisee. As to zeal, you know, some Pharisees, okay, I keep the law, but you know, I go that far. Paul goes the extra mile when it comes to his service of God. As to zeal, you want to see where my heart was? I was so zealous for God, I tracked down Christians like a heavenly bloodhound. I was after them. And so he not only is content to persecute Christians in Jerusalem, that heart of Christianity in the, in the early days where that first church is established, he's going to go to Damascus because he hears that they're now Christians in Damascus. And so he gets letters from the priest, the high priest, that had the office, you see. He doesn't have an office. He's a Pharisee. And he's going to track them down to Damascus. He is a persecutor of the church. You can't fault him on zeal. He has a zeal for God, not according to knowledge, but zeal all the same. But then he adds, again, things he did, things he could really claim as his own, 
as to the law, the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, does that mean he is saying he's sinless? No, you read the rest of the New Testament. You read Romans 7. It says when he bumped up against the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Boom. Because the covetousness deals with the heart. You don't have, do you have laws in this country against covetousness? You know? Right? If you covet, you're going to be fined $10,000 or locked up for five years or both. Do you have anything like that? State of New, of New York, New Jersey, I'm sure we don't. Why? Because you can't prove it. He's coveting my tennis shoes. I've got new Nikes and he's coveting them. I know it. How do you know it? It's in the heart. And that's where he bumped up against the commandment. He says, I died. That was it. That's when I realized I was not blameless. Because you see, and I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you have said you've been uh, tuning into Trinity's evening service. So maybe you've caught some of these. But last Lord's Day, we started in that section in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus tackles the Pharisees' misinterpretation of the law. And Jesus had said, you must have righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? How can you be better than them? And this is the way. Because the Pharisees said, don't murder. Well, I didn't kill anybody, so I'm okay. Check. Don't commit adultery. Well, I never slept with another woman. Check. I'm okay. But Jesus says, you're not looking at the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. All these evil things come out of the heart. God looks on the heart, not just the outward view. And so, although Paul says blameless, he was blameless as a Pharisee, not blameless in the eyes of God, because he saw his heart. He sinned in his heart against God. And so, you see, all these things, outward things he could claim, are just a sham, are just a veneer. It looks good. And there are many people, maybe even young people who grow up in Christian homes and they learn right and wrong and they learn how to behave and they learn how to be polite and say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, please, thank you. And they're very nice kids. It doesn't make you right with God. And Paul says, I got that far. That was it. Let's look at what else he says. All these things I count as loss. Whatever things were gain, verse 7. All that stuff I just listed, it's really on the negative column. If you have any accountants here, you don't have to raise your hands. Uh, I never wanted to be a, an accountant and count other people's money. Uh, you know, I have enough trouble taking care of my own money to try to take care of somebody else's money. But... Uh, be that as it, as it may, it, you know what it is to keep books. You've got assets, you've got liabilities, you've got the plus column, and you've got the negative column. And Paul was saying here, all these things I could put in my plus column. You know, my birth, my circumcision, I had all these assets. I kept all those laws. I was blameless. Now what does Paul say? In reality, all those good works, we're filthy rags. They're garbage. They're, they're lost. I, I transfer them to the liability. They, those are negatives. Those are against me. 
all those things. When Jesus overtook him on the road to Damascus, armed with those letters from the priests to go persecute Christians, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He realized, maybe in those three days of praying, that he was guilty. And all those things he boasted in before, the glorying that he had in his flesh, he has no confidence in the flesh, as he said earlier in the chapter. So, one more thing, though. Notice that he lumps in with those things, whatever things were gained to me, he lumps in everything else. Look at verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. All things. Now think about it. Okay, so Paul had all those things, circumcision, law-keeping, all that stuff, and they, they may not be bad in itself. Of course, it's not bad to be... Uh, seeking to obey God, that's a good thing. But he says, everything else too. Career? Well, he had a promising career as a young rabbi, right? Yeah, he studied in the best school, Gamaliel. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He learned all Gamaliel had to say. He had a promising future as a rabbi. So what do you say? That's lost. That's, that's, that's worthless. You know? But Paul, what about your house back in Jerusalem? Paul, what about your girlfriend? That you, We don't know if they had a girlfriend. But what about all this other stuff? What about your relationships? What about your mom and dad? What about your family heritage? What about all the respectability that you earned? All those people who looked up to you. What about all that, Paul? He says, who cares? It's not worth anything. Well, wait a minute, he's worth nothing? Well, he doesn't really say that, but look at what he says in comparison. And we're going to get there what he gained, but it's a comparison. And he says, not only are they lost, career, friends, and let's make it down to your level, not saying that Paul had these things, but career, friends, girlfriend, boyfriend, family, houses, lands, future. He says, never mind that stuff. If there's anything between you and Christ, it's loss. Not only loss, but he uses another word there in verse 8. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now the word rubbish, and again, I don't often uh, teach Greek from the pulpit, but I, I, some of these words are just so fascinating. The word that he uses here is only used here at this one place in the New Testament. It's used once in the Apocrypha, in the Greek version, uh, you know, those Greek books that were added to the Old Testament that don't count as Old Testament. They're not uh, inspired by God. But there's one verse there in the Apocrypha that says in Sirach, when, as when one sifteth with a sieve, the refuse remains, so the filth of man in his talk. The filth. That's the word. And the word, the Greek word is skubala. Skubala. That's skubala. Now, you just learned a Greek word. It means rubbish. It means dung. It means what you throw to the dogs. Of course, dogs don't eat dung. But uh, it, it's, it's stuff that's worthless. 
You know, kids, when you finish maybe and uh, there's leftovers and mom says, you know, it's not really worth keeping, you give it to the dog. It's refuse. It's stuff that nobody wants to eat. Garbage, rubbish, worthless, toss it out. That's what Paul says about everything else in his life. Anything that comes between you and Christ, anything that rivals Christ in your affections, anything that says, worship me and not him, anything that says, follow me and not him, anything that says, I am worth more than Christ, you say, it's rubbish. And dear young people, I remember as a, as a young Christian, there are some things that maybe in themselves not even be bad. But I determined as a young Christian, if this keeps me from my Savior, I'm going to cut it out of my life. Whether it's your music, whether it's your computer game, whatever it may be, if it keeps you from your Bible, keeps you from your Savior, it's not worth it. Maybe something perfectly fine. But if it comes between you and Christ, Paul says, everything else, whatever else that I used to love, used to you know, make my heart beat faster if it came between me and my Savior, it's gone. It's history. I count all things as loss, as rubbish, as scubala, for the sake of gaining Christ Jesus my Lord. And so what did Paul gain? That's what he lost. And I see in my notes, there's one more point, so let me stick with my notes. You know, this is what Jesus said. Matthew 10, 37, 38, he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Anything that comes between you and Christ is scubala. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, everything you need, he'll add it to you. He's going to take care of you. Okay, you have to work. Okay, yes, you have to earn your bread. Yes, and I'm not denying that. But don't let anything come between you and Christ. What did Paul gain? What happened to Paul that he so radically changed his evaluation of things in the world. He used to boast in this stuff. He used to say, this is really the, where it's at, to have, Christ, to, to, to have uh, this Jewish heritage, to be circumcised the eighth day, to be a Pharisee, a lawkeeper, strict, and have a reputation of zeal. He says, that's not where it's at. What changed him so radically, 180 degrees? Well, you know the story. Acts chapter 9, he met Jesus. As I said, going on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, lock them up, take care of them, stamp out Christianity. Sound familiar? There are places in the world where they're trying real hard to do that. Stamp it out, crush it. Doesn't work. Jesus is still on his throne. Jesus met chief persecutor number one on the road to doing that dirty deed. Bright light shines. 
light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm reading from Acts chapter, uh, chapter 9. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. After that, everything changed. He tells us his story in Galatians 1.23. They kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he tried to destroy. Imagine, that, that's really astounding. We read it so frequently and maybe we're so familiar with the story that it's just like, oh yeah, Paul was converted. Do you really grasp the monumental change? He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he tried to stamp out. How does that happen? Because he was convinced that what he once had was worthless. Was he fickle? Was he like a weatherman? You know, I've met people who change their religion uh, like the weather. You know, the wind's blowing this way. Okay, I'll be like this. And Bunyan describes them in Pilgrim's Progress. You've got Mr. Facing Both Ways. You've got, uh, he, he's the relative of my Lord Turnabout. And then there's the parson Two Tongues. Is that Paul? You know, he's going to be this way one day. I, I, it's interesting, just a little story. There was a man who came to our church in the Philippines. It was just a Bible study then, and it was, he was a very, he was thumping his, uh, you know, he said, what Bible do you use? And, and I don't want to get into the issue, perhaps. But, uh, you know, he changed his, he just went flipped like this. He didn't stick with us. Is this Paul? Mr. Changing every day, Mr. Weathervane, blow this way, blow that way. <laughs> Did he ever change again? He was stuck in this new direction. Jesus had turned him around. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And so he said, going back to Philippians I count all that but loss for the sake of what I met on the Damascus road, gaining Christ Jesus my Lord. And so what is so good about Christ? Look back at the text in Philippians chapter 3. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing him. So you see knowledge is connected here. But it's not just knowledge of a set of facts. It's not just passing your doctrine exam at the Christian school. It's not just saying, well, okay, I know all this stuff. But it's knowing what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so, really, the question comes down to this. Do you know him? See, gaining Christ is really knowing him. We spoke about this yesterday at the retreat, knowing him that there's a relationship. You are with him. You gain Christ. That means you gain fellowship with him. You gain that companionship, as it were, with him. It's not like you're walking with somebody and you talk and he answers back. We don't hear voices, but we read our Bibles and God speaks to us. And we carry that with us through the day. That's why it's important, dear brethren, and I'm not dictating the time when you should have your devotions, but to me, you read your Bible in the morning, you carry it with you through the day. You have your Savior with you, and you ask him, speak to me, Lord. Not that you're waiting for voices, but you, he speaks in his word, and you carry that with you. You know him, and he hears you, 
And you know he hears you when you pray. His ear is open to your cry. You, and this is the amazing thing, the living God who created heaven and earth bends his ear to the earth to hear the prayer of his little ones. I know him, Paul said, and that's better than all the world could give me. To know him, to gain him is to know him, and to know him is to love him. To know him is to be united to him. Look at verse 9. And be found in him. Now this is the language of union with Christ, being in Christ Jesus. Uh, it's not a, a local thing that we, you know, we somehow place ourselves inside of him, but it's a language of union. Uh, this is the grand teaching of Paul. Paul, in a sense, his doctrine of salvation is union with Christ. We're united with him in his death. In baptism, there's a picture of that. So you're dead and you're buried with Christ and your sins washed away in that water. Not literally that baptism washes sin, but it's a picture of what he does by his blood and saving. Washes sin. And you're raised from that water. That's why this tank, I guess it's under there. Uh, we don't leave people under the water, by the way, if you've never been to a baptism. We, we take them out. And they're raised. And what's that a picture of? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, raised to walk in newness of life. The old man is gone. The new man is come. This is what God does. Knowing him, being united to him. My old man is dead. I don't need to live in sin. When sin comes and orders me and says, do this, I can say, I'm dead to you. You're not my master anymore. I have a new master. Walking in newness of life, united to Jesus. Just like Jesus uses the analogy of a branch and a vine in John chapter 15. The branch united to the vine gains its strength from being close to that vine. You cut off the branch and what happens? And... I don't know if we have any horticulturists, horticulturalists or agriculturalists here, but I think you know enough about plants. You got off the branch, it's going to die. United to Christ, living connection. We gain strength, life from him. And especially being, uh, gaining Christ is gaining his righteousness. Look at what he says in verse 9. May be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, I, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I think it's the third time I've quoted this verse in our retreat. If you know it by now. But you see what he says. Let's underscore it. Not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law. What did he boast about as a Pharisee? I keep the law. Check, 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 check. As to the law, blameless. Now what does he say? Not having my own righteousness. I, I, God took away the scales. God took away those funny glasses. Now I see myself for what I am. All that I thought was righteous, because I didn't kill anybody, I didn't sleep with any other women, I didn't do those other things, I didn't bow down to an idol, Literally, I thought it was good, but now I see my heart. 
And I see what was in my heart. I see the lust. I see the anger. I see the hatred. Look at what he's doing. He's going to kill Christians. I see that I was sinning against the God I thought I was serving. I thought I had righteousness according to the law. I had zip, zero, zilch, nada, bokya. Well, that's Filipino. Uh, I had nothing. Now I have everything. As to the righteousness and the law, I was found blameless before, but now I see that I was blameworthy in every ten commandment, every one of the ten. But now I have a righteousness that will pass the test. God is a God too pure to look on iniquity. He cannot look on iniquity with favor. And God now can look on me with favor. You say, wait a minute. Where'd you get that? In Christ. I'm found in him. So that here is a perfect robe of righteousness. You look at it. There's no flaw. Every stitch in place. Every fold perfectly creased. This robe is mine. But it's mine not by my works. It's mine by faith in His robe of righteousness I wear. And when the Father looks on me, he sees him. That's a perfect righteousness. And God finds no fault in it. And he says, well done. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Me? Well, I'm his son. But there's a greater son who is well pleasing in every aspect. And it's his righteousness What did Paul pray for? For three days? You ever wonder that? You know, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in the uh, room there in the house of of, uh, Simon the Tanner, er, Simon rather, in uh, Straight Street in uh, Damascus. I would have loved to have heard what Paul was praying for three days and three nights. He's praying. What was he praying about? I suspect he was reviewing his life. And crying out to God for mercy. Seeing himself as he really was for the first time. The the scales are taken away. The blinders are off. The clear glass, not that foggy, fuzzy mirror of the Pharisee. He sees himself. Father, I have sinned. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. For three days... Blind physically, but now seeing straight spiritually. Humble to the dust. The proud Pharisee is gone. And in his place is one who sees himself as the chief of sinners. Have you seen yourself for what you are? Have you had the scales taken away so that instead of boasting, well, I'm not like I used to be, I'm better. I've, I've reformed myself. Have you seen yourself? Now, we don't use these words in ordinary English, vile, wretched. I mean, it's not something you hear in your literature class every day, probably. It's, it's a real world. It means stinking filthy. It means miserable. Have you seen yourself for what you are? 
in the sight of God. I remember seeing myself. Not a pretty picture, but you need to see it. Because you see, if you don't see yourself that way, you never come to God for that righteousness which is by faith. The righteousness of God on the basis of faith. A God righteousness. Is there anything wrong with God's righteousness? I mean, almost by definition, God is holy. God hates sin. God would never do sin. It's unthinkable. Inconceivable. That God would sin because he's a holy God. And now God gives a God righteousness. How? Well, you try to be good. God will bless you. You, you. God helps those who help themselves. Is that Bible? I'm sure you've heard that phrase. God helps those who help themselves. That's not Bible. That's not gospel. That was cooked up in hell. God helps the helpless. Romans chapter while we were still helpless. He says, the righteousness which is from God by faith, on the basis of faith. And so here's the issue. Are you going to be righteous with God by your works, by your doing, your dying, your suffering? Now, I come from the Philippines, you know, and Good Friday in the Philippines is the time when uh, some many Filipinos will take to the roads carrying a cross. And while they're carrying a cross, in the other hand, they'll have a whip and lash themselves or have somebody else doing it for them. And their whole idea is that they're going to somehow gain God's favor and God will be put in an arm lock, a headlock, and he's going to have to do what they ask because they earned it by their suffering. Of course, it's folly. We can never suffer enough for our sins. What is the wages of sin? Death. And there's one who already paid that, who already suffered that. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he did this once and for all. It means it's sufficient. It's completed. Even Jesus on the cross said, it is 99% finished. No, no. It is finished. And so when Paul says, I have a righteousness from God, he's saying 100% from God, 0% from me. You get that? Not having a righteousness of my own, zero. But that which is from God on the basis of faith, 100%. So here's the issue. Do you have your righteousness? No, it's filthy rags. Or do you have God's righteousness? That is acceptable. God. And so here's Paul's net worth. Net worth. Okay, Paul, what's your worth? You know, let's let's get out the uh, balance sheet. Let's check it all out. Are you ready to retire, Paul? What have you got? Okay, you know, you got, okay, this asset, you got a house, you got uh, some stocks, you've got some CDs. I'm not talking about those round ones. Uh, you, you, you've got all of these investments. You're ready to retire. You've got the net worth. You're okay. Paul says, Here's one item in my net worth. It's Christ. For me to live, we saw yesterday, is Christ. To die is gain, because I'm going to be with him. That's Paul's net worth, Christ. Everything else on the other side? Skubala. Rubbish. Everything else, rubbish. On this side, Christ. 
I got Christ. And so, again, what about you? We come to the third point. What about you? What's your net worth? Is it your righteousness, your works, what you've done? Are you boasting in the flesh? Going back to the earlier verse there, uh, verse 3, we are the circumcision, the true circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit. Why are you here this morning? As true Christians want to come, their spirit overflows in worship and praise. And I think a proper translation there was we we worship God in our spirit. We have true spiritual worship. Of course, it's fueled by the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. What makes your heart tick? We have no confidence in the flesh. You know, this is important when it comes to preaching. You know, maybe you think we got a good speaker, our pastor's a good man, he's a faithful preacher, we're okay. We have no confidence in the flesh. You pray for your pastor. You have no confidence in him as a man. Of course, yes, we, 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 he's a good example, he's an example of the faith, he has to have a good example or he can't be a pastor. But where's your confidence? Not in man. Our confidence is in the living God who made heaven and earth. And this God is able to open hearts like he did with Lydia. So we come here this morning, we worship God in the spirit. Is your confidence in the flesh or is it in Christ? His righteousness or yours? His works or yours? Your stuff, your toys, dung. Your righteousness, dung. Christ is all and in all. And so, do you know him? As Paul said, that I may be found in Christ, that I may know him. Have you known him? Not as a mere historical figure, not as a mere theoretical, theological figure that you study in your theology books, but you know this person, the God-man, who left his home in glory. Chapter 2. Humbled himself. Endured the cross. And is now highly exalted. Do you know him? Has it brought you down to see what you are? The chief of sinners. Do you see yourself? Have you been united to him in that living relationship? Let me give an illustration. Maybe the young people from Trinity have heard this. I, I used this some years ago there. But when I was in China, this is going back uh, more than 10 years ago, I spoke, I, I was teaching a group of men. And we were in a, kind of outside the city where we were. I won't give any uh, clues that we would be tracked down. But we were out there, and this was a rural area, and there was a little orchard outside the venue of these classes. And I was, in our lunch break, I went out to walk through the orchard, and I noticed that these trees, these, I don't know what fruit it was because it was winter, it was, there were no leaves, but there were graft, branches grafted in, in these trees. So this was done so that there would be these crossbreeds, the, the, uh, one tree would have different varieties, and so there were grafted in branches. But they are hanging on one of these trees. Now get this picture, this is a little orchard, out in the countryside of China, was hanging, and I'm not lying, a toilet brush. What is this doing here? Is this used to scrub the trees before they graft something in? I don't know what it was doing there. 
But this toilet brush was hanging on a tree. It wasn't alive. It wasn't grafted in. It wasn't gaining any sap from the tree. But it was there. You know, as an illustration, there's some people who hang around, and I don't mean to be crass or, or gross, hang around the, the Christian church, hang around Christian people, and think that just being there is good enough. But that's like being that, that brush on this tree. You have to be grafted in. You have to be in Christ. As many as are in Christ Jesus, they have to be joined by faith, trusting in him and his work. And it's not enough just to be there. And so when it comes down to the bottom line is this. What's your boast? Paul said, before I would boast in all these other things. What I was, what I had, what I did. He says, rubbish. Scubala. Because now I've got the pearl of great price, the treasure of treasures, the riches of riches, the king of kings and lord of lords, the true righteousness. I have Jesus. Do you have, can you say honestly, I have Jesus? See this man, Paul? He was not a lunatic. He was a very sharp thinker. And this was his analysis. After all he had been through and done. I think it's good analysis. Many of us have been there. There are many in this room who would echo Paul's testimony. All that stuff, forget about it. You get Christ. You got what matters. You have eternity. Life. Life, eternal life, Bunyan's pilgrim cried, stuffed his fingers in his ears and ran. Don't listen to the world. Hear the word of God. Gain Christ. And you've got it all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for Paul's testimony, for this man who had it all, as it were, in this world, had it all religiously even, who had such a righteousness that none could compare. And yet he says... It was rubbish. And so we plead that you would help each young and old here this day to turn from their own righteousness as filthy rags and to lay hold of, to grasp firmly that robe of righteousness which comes from Jesus on the basis of faith, that pardon, that acceptance, that forgiveness of sins through the shed blood, and then that new life, that changed life, even as we see this 180-degree change in Paul, we ask you would do the same for many here this morning. And so hear our cry. Only you can open hearts. Only you can change hearts. We have no confidence in the flesh, but we glory in Christ Jesus, who is able to do exceeding abundantly more than we ask or think. And in his name we pray. Amen.